Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. Today's episode is the second part of a two-part series with Professor Theresa Bejon from Oxford University. And in this second part, we're going to be talking about political civility. And I really couldn't think of anyone better to join us to discuss this topic. If you want the context for this conversation, we do kind of just jump in en medias res, as it were. Then you're more than welcome to check out the first part of it, where we talk about the role of religion in the early American colonies, the founding of Rhode Island, and how people achieved a pluralistic, non-murderous society in spite of extreme religious differences. In this episode, we're applying some of these ideas to contemporary American debate, and we talk about civility and how it might or might not work well to further conversation rather than shut it down. So if you want the context, please do check out the first episode. If you don't care too much for context, or you're happy to just jump straight in in the middle, welcome to the second part of my conversation with Professor Bejon where we discuss civility and tone policing and political disagreement in general. There's no introductions to this one, we're just going to jump straight in. So, welcome to the show. It is my absolute pr- pleasure to present Professor Theresa Bejon. The fact that this was achieved with people whose differences were more severe should give us some sort of degree of hope. But then Mm. when you look at how a lot of political discourse is regulated in America, it does seem like we're sort of... And I want to give you one example from the political right and one from the political left and just get your response to them. Um, So on the political right when a lot of the discourse about social movements that they don't like, let's just say take feminism as an example, Mm -hmm. focuses on the tone and tenor of what their opponents are presenting. So um, why why don't we like feminists? Not us, but the conservatives. Well, they're they're so angry, they're so loud, they're so strident, strident, right? (laughs) Atheism is another great example, even in today's world, is the... it just seems like whenever you get a critique of like the the, the, the the modern atheist movement, of which there are valid critiques, and I've made them mm-hmm. on the show, it's all about, well, well, they hurt my feelings. It's offensive to religious people. And my response to someone generally on the left is, so bloody what? Screw your feelings, <laughs> right? Like, you just, no, no, are the ideas correct, right? Mm-hmm. Now, there, there, there might be many valid critiques of Judith Butler or whoever, but the fact that she's angry isn't anything to do with the veracity of her decision. And there also might be legitimate reasons why feminists are angry. You know, oppression of half of the human race for almost all of humankind. (laughs) You know, that that might be something that's worth getting upset about, maybe, right? Um, So let me get your response to this. The the social justice types call it tone policing, that it seems like the main thing 
that the right focus is on on social justice yeah. movements. Black Lives Matter, another great example. Mm-hmm. We just they're too angry, mm-hmm. you know. So let me get your response to the way conservatives seem to just immediately zero in on tone. Yeah, well, so this is. Um... I mean, this is a an ancient an ancient tradition of uh, of of zeroing in on the manner of disagreement when what you really object to is the fact of disagreement. Um, it's funny the point about atheists. I mean, this um, Richard Allistry, who's a who's a moralist writing in the 17th century, says exactly the same thing. He says, you know, the thing is that atheists need to realize how offensive their discourse is, <laughs> you know, and that and it's just. I, I think it's a really human, it's a human response. Um, It's one thing I, you know, I wouldn't want to sort of say this is exclusive to the right, right? I mean, I think that it's, you sort of see it on both sides of sort of saying, well, what I really object to is the, is, is the, can't you at least be civil, right? You can't you at least be civil. I'm not objecting to the fact you disagree. I'm just objecting to how you're disagreeing. But of course, what I point out in the book, and I think that early modern thinkers really reckon with in a way that we just simply don't is that disagreement as such is disagreeable. Um, That there's a reason that disagreeable is a synonym for unpleasant. So in fact, you know, although instinctively you reach for, oh, well, what I object to is the way that they're, they're just being so unpleasant about it. You know, that's sort of how we, that's the sort of visceral response to kind of a disagreement or someone who sort of holds a view that we dislike. But, you know, being aware, but if you're aware of the kind of disagreeableness of disagreement, you then might have that second thought, which is, well, actually, you know, it's it's the fact of this difference that I'm finding jarring. Um, And so so civility, in your view, or like the correct conception of that concept, is sort of the ability to just work through that in some sense. Yeah, it's about tolerating the disagreeableness of disagreement. I mean, that that I think oh, is nice. civility is you know civility is, is that above all because that's just a fact, and that's a fact that you're not going to sort of reform or abolish or manage or you know or dissolve, right? That's mm. just that's that's a feature, not a bug, of, of human psychology and of, of human uh, collective life. And so civility, if it's going to be I mean, one thing I, I want to, to maintain in the book is, you know, I went into writing it as a civility skeptic. And one of the things that, that really struck me was just how, um, how critiques of civility from the left and the right converged on this issue, sort of noticing that civility talk was used almost universally as a way to silence and exclude and suppress those on the other side. So, you know, exactly the sort of thing you're noting with, well, you know, so you can be an atheist, but just, you know, it's just the way you you just don't be so unpleasant about it really amounts to shut up, they explained. Yeah, Um, there's a a good body of thought in the atheist movement of like, is there really anything we can say that mm -hmm. won't run into that? Mm -hmm. But so then you're right, the critiques converge. I guess my concern when the left do this sort of um, more Lockean or Rawlsian Uh, civility policing is that it does strike me that they have a bit more legitimacy so a Mm. big part of the modern social justice left is like and I think feminism was the the movement to start this but it's mapped into all sorts of domains of discrimination is really picking apart language and saying you you might not even realize it but the language you've used is implicitly sexist or implicitly mm-hmm. racist, and you might be committing a, a microaggression or um, some sort of like thing. But then there is the concern that, 
accepting that critique as true, the mm. way most people talk most of the time is going to have um, uh, is going to express gender norms that we might find problematic and so on. But if you're going to make the conversation about that, you're net. You, you're going to run into the same barriers, right? Of you're not actually going to get to have the conversation with the person. Mm. Now, the difference with the left is I do regard that as somewhat legitimate. Like, it surely is the case that our language imp- embodies problematic gender norms. That's surely true. But then if the main thing we're attempting to do, like the right always accuses of trying to police language, but maybe there's some legitimacy there. I haven't worked through that contradiction fully, and I'd be really interested in your thoughts there. Yeah, I mean, I do see see the convergence, and I I think that, um, I mean, one thing that I would just like to, you know, get people to think think a bit about is just, you know, (laughs) is, uh, is that the experience of being righteous in one's views is, is a pretty much universal experience. Um, You know, we, we feel it exquisitely in our own case that, yes, of course I'm right. And that person is, is just just really beyond the pale, irredeemably wrong. Um, But the funniest thing is that they feel exactly the same way. It doesn't mean that we're both right. I mean, it could be the fact of the matter that I'm right and they're wrong. But in terms of, you know, just the experience and the psychology of it, that's the social fact. That's the fact we have to deal with. Um, I worry. um, I mean, I I think that the the comparison between um, modern, you know, quote unquote, uh, sort of tone policing or, um, or, or political correctness, you know, oftentimes you hear this on the, on the right. I mean, I think that the issue comes in when, you know, when the pointing out of kind of gendered or implicitly racist language becomes not an invitation to continuing the discussion and trying to understand, understand, you know, what's gone wrong or what's implied. It's, it becomes instead, uh, an invitation to end or to write off the person. And I think very often that that's what people are kind of reacting against. It's the sense that they're being written off. Um, and that's what I, you know, th- that's when I begin to worry because I think that, right, I mean, just the idea that um, that the language we use, that words have histories, right? That words pre-exist us and very often the language we use, con- you know, conveys meanings and sort of, and, 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 and ideas that are, you know, to which we're completely oblivious. I mean, that's another, that's just, again, just a fact of what it is to be human. We're sort of born into language and we do things with it, but it also, you know, <laughs> it does things with us. Um, so I think that there's nothing, I mean, there shouldn't be anything wrong with pointing that out to someone. Indeed, it can, you know, it, it's, it's a really important thing, I think, to be able to say to someone and, you know, and I've said it to people and people have said it to me. It's like, no, that what you've just said then is racist. It's implicitly racist. But what, what those people have done for me and what I think I've done for other people is, is that's not, that's not the end of the conversation. Right. That, I mean, that's the beginning of the conversation. And that's what, you know, if, if I had to put my finger on what I would say is, you know, might be a kind of crisis today or might be a kind of crisis or a problem, particularly on the left, is that I think we're kind of getting past that idea of, well, what this is, is a kind of invitation to further discussion. Rather, it's, um, it's the, it's the, Break, the breaking point where we sort of evaluate whether someone is um, 
what's the what what do the kids say this day canceled you know? yeah so and so is quote unquote canceled um and that's where you know where i think we have a lot to learn from 17th century evangelical christians like roger williams who would never cancel anyone <laughs> or rather he canceled everyone <laughs> so, right because in just... a weird way once you cancel everyone um you're yeah. canceling no one what's the thing about roger williams that the only person he trusted to worship with was his wife and he wasn't he even wasn't sure, sure about, about her, her. Yeah, but that's exactly right, you know. And I, and I, my hope would be, I mean, where I have cause for optimism is, I think that's the logical conclusion. You know, the time to remember that lit, the Rhode Island was called the latrine of New England. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, so you're right. Once you've cancelled everyone, and it goes back to that sense of fallenness. But actually, um, you know, in terms of you know the normative thrust of the book, or sort of where I think the historical account turns into a normative account, is in recovering. Um, civility is a sense of conversational virtues that are essential for, to, you know, for a tolerant society to work. And one of those conversational virtues is epistemic humility. Mm. And that's not, you know, it's not the same as open-mindedness. It's not even the same as a sense of one's own fallibility. What, what it is is just a, a sense of the of the inevitable partiality of one's own perspective. Right. So I'm not the first person to make this analogy. It's often made as a critique, but there is something very religious in, in almost like you, you get the sense of like almost like a 20s revivalist sense of the social justice left. And conservatives make this as a critique. I don't think it necessarily is. It's just the, the idea that people have tribal identities. People mm -hmm. feel a sense of belonging to certain groups and certain movements. But even like the language they use, like people talk about being woke. Well, that's a that's a revivalist phrase. Mm, um, yeah. And there is a sense of um, th there's a wonderful article called "Excommunicate Me from the Church of Social Justice," which is like <laughs> we we are getting to the point now where we have actual dogmas. You know. Absolutely. And there's nothing actually wrong with that, but maybe a sense of that aspect to ourselves and how we appear to other people might be quite useful, right? Yeah, I mean, just right. See, seeing how it looks from someone else's perspective, um, you know, th I mean, the odd thing about it is, it, 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 I mean, surely this is something that we all know we should be doing, but there is a sense in which our, you know, being filled with a sense of one's own righteousness becomes a really good way of, of, of immunizing oneself to, you know, taking an external perspective. Um, I think that that's, I think that it's really right. And again, the, um, the uh, early modern comparison here, I think, is really helpful. I mean, the original, uh, the originators of call-out culture were, you know, were Protestants. <laughs> they were calling out, they were calling out the sinfulness of uh, the sinfulness of their of their fellow Christians. They were, um, you know, as Williams puts it, sounding the silver alarms against sin wherever he found it, witnessing against sin wherever he found it. And um, but here, I do think that you know, on, on the left on the social justice left that, you know, they have something to learn from, you know, evangelical, you know, a little evangelical zeal in addition to activist zeal would be good. <laughs> right. In that a lot of what you're saying is so valid, but if you're saying it to make converts, you're using just like, you're, 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 it's almost like you couldn't design a way to communicate these ideas that's going to be less intelligible to conservatives. Exactly so. And, and it becomes as a lot of religious revivalist movements are want to do becomes about maintaining the purity of the community of believers right. as opposed to building the church. And I, you know, 
I think people are getting on, you know, when I started writing the book, people were really skeptical of this comparison, but now it seems to be, seems to be, um, common wisdom, which is that, you know, basically contemporary political parties function a lot like religious sects. I mean, as you, as you alluded to this sort of the, the, we're using the language of tribal tribalism. I actually think the language of sectarianism, um, is really helpful because I think it captures this elements of the kind of the politics of purity, um, that can cut. So the, the worry about, worry about schism as you know, as, as Christians would have called it in the 17th century, is that it's a kind of puritanism that aims at cutting off others from your community um, rather than bringing them in. Um, and I think you really do see that dynamic in contemporary American politics, um, in politics, politics, and also cultural politics, where we seem a lot more concerned about maintaining divisions and maintaining the purity and maintaining the party line than we do about actually, you know, persuading anybody or indeed making a difference. I mean, this is what kind of kill what I find so, so head scratching in a lot of contemporary politics, which is just, it seems that, you know, any sort of will to build a coalition <laughs> seems to have evaporated. What we want is to really just know we're on the right side and be really just sort of satisfied with, you know, how righteous we are. Um, but to bring, and, yeah, go ahead. No, but it just, it just seems to me that, you know, that, that might be, um, that might be kind of reasonable if you believe the world is going to end tomorrow. But since it seems that one of the things that we no longer believe is that the world is going to end tomorrow, that this just seems ridiculously short-sighted. <laughs> yeah, which is like, I think many on the social justice radicals are self-consciously not interested in winning converts. Like, this mm -hmm. is about a discourse within our own community, be that like yeah. feminism, LGBT, black. Mm -hmm. This is about us building a community that's sort of separate from the society in which we exist. And it just, but the society in which you exist is still going to exist, and you can have two languages. Conservatives are, are better at this than us. They talk, because there's like this sort of neutral, classical, liberal language of like public-private divide and reason. Mm -hmm. So a conservative, when they get up to argue for something preposterous like creationism in schools, won't appeal to biblical truth, which is presumably what the worldview is grounded in. They'll say, well, I think the children should be taught both sides of the debate. I think people mm -hmm. should be able to make up their own mind and study the evidence. In other words, they'll appeal to classically liberal values as a mm -hmm. sort of ideological lingua franca. Um, mm -hmm. But then presumably when they're in their church, they'll they'll be talking about Genesis or whatever. Mm -hmm. Liberals need to do the same, right? It's fine to have a private language of, like, microaggressions and trigger warnings and intersectionality, and I can talk that lingo too, but if we're going to communicate publicly, you, you have to sort of be ideologically bilingual mm -hmm. to say something that other people might be able to access. You gotta learn their language. I mean, it's really funny. One thing that Williams did and really sets him apart, going back to sort of what what went right in Rhode Island, was that the first thing he did. I mean, he he he'd always been a really excellent um, linguist, but you know, the first thing he did was go and 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 learn learn the local languages. You know, it, the first thing Williams publishes is a is a handbook of American language um, called A Key into the Language of America. It's published in London in 1643. And in a way, I sort of feel that's, you know, we, a, a lot of a, a lot of us today have sort of lost interest in, in learning the language of uh, of our neighbors. 
I mean, right. this is what I find really mind boggling. And I mean, I think it's worth saying, you know, I, I'm from the South and, you know, I, I'm, you know, my family's very conservative and I just, you know, it, it's, it's one thing I would just want my fellow political theorists to think about sometimes. <laughs> it's just how sociologically narrow <laughs> the kind of ivory towers we inhabit are and that, and how preaching from that bully pulpit in this sort of private language can sound <laughs> right to someone is, who's not is, privileged in that way which is not to say that the, the the conservatives are right no no but it's just to say you know it's just to say if you are right don't live you want up other to people your... to be right as well yeah but i don't think we this is what worries me i begin to think that maybe we don't that, that there's something really nice about feeling i'm right and they're wrong and that we've gotten to a point of sort of it's more important to feel that than it is to feel to feel like we've built a kind of community that 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 could be decent. So that, but then I would actually want to give a different vision, which is informed by just before I get to that, though, there's kind of a bullet biting moment is I know what my social justice friends would be saying right now. Mm -hmm. They would firstly check my privilege to use the language they point out that i'm a white man saying this yeah and they'd say well look but you you can say well have conversational robustness no one's going to call you the n-word and it's not going to hit home in the same way right? yeah that's that's not an unreasonable point yeah um they would also say but you're saying i have to have conversational tolerance with people who want to deny very fundamental aspects of my humanity. You're yeah. saying if I'm a trans person, I have to converse, have conversational tolerance with someone who refuses to use my preferred pronouns. Mm -hmm. And there might just be a bullet-biting moment there where you sort of say, yes, in some circumstances, yes. And I'm perfectly happy to own my privilege as a white man going into that and show a bit of epistemic, not even epistemic humility, but just like social humility, mm -hmm. that I'm saying that from a perspective of privilege. But yes, the founders of America got through, I am going to have a conversation with someone I think is worshipping the devil, and is mm -hmm. going to send my kids to hell. You can, you can do this, you know? Yeah, and if you choose not to, it, it, you know, do so with the... That with the knowledge of what's being forfeited there. I mean, I think that, yeah, that's a bullet I'm willing to bite. And I've been pushed on this, um, you know, quite a bit in, in reviews and symposia about the book, but I, but I, I, I it's a line I want to hold, um, that that's the insight, you know, insofar as we have to live with other people, this is a condition of living with other people on, you know, on terms of mutual tolerance. Now we might decide that we one don't want to live with those people or two can't live with them on terms of mutual tolerance. That might be you know, that might be the conclusion but then I think that those those are conclusions we have to own. But then, and there's, then, the, then there's a bullet to bite on the other side of that as well. Mm -hmm. Which is either we can live together or we can't. But if we if we're going to live together we have to live together with people as they actually are and that's a hard bullet to bite especially when you map in something like racism to that. Right. But then the, the other bullet to bite, which I think some black radicals will, is they would say, yeah, ideally we would just have a black-only community and completely separate. And if you bite that bullet, then fine, that's at least a coherent view. But th there's a bullet to bite on either side of it, right? 
I think that's right. And then I think considerations of political prudence do come in. I think it's a, it's a coherent view. It's an imprudent view. And I think, you know, it's just imprudent in the sense that you, you can see. It's funny, you get a version of the Benedictine option on both sides. You know, can we just opt out? of our irredeemably sinful society, whether we see the sin as secular liberalism or the sin as racism or whatever, right? You know, can we just opt out and sort of have our, have our community of the, um, of, of the saints? Um, and you can, but your community of the saints is then wholly dependent on and vulnerable to the whims of, of a society from which you've, you, you've alienated yourselves. It's not, I mean, I don't give... I mean, on the one hand, I don't have an, an at all rosy view about, you know, the what, what coexistence is like. I think coexistence is really hard. Right. <laughs> it's really hard. It's really unpleasant. But it's better than the alternative. But that brings us back to your initial point about the value of history and like this kind of weird academic division that we have in that we have to the challenge of political philosophy is to find a way to live in the world as the world is or at least as the world could be mm -hmm. right if you're going to start as rules does from pure abstractness it seems inevitable that you're going to create something that, that creaks and groans when you try to force it onto that reality yeah and there's an effective dimension as well where it you know it's a sort of um uh, deformation professionnelle, right? Where we, when we adopt that approach, that that we're constantly at risk of, of preferring the pleasure of preaching to the converted, right? Right, <laughs> and the conversation of the like-minded. And again, thinking about politics, you know, it just seems to me a, a basic condition is you know thinking about. The polity and 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 the people as as they are and now but here's the here's the flip side here's the rosy side I'm going to give you I mean it's always we keep you have to keep an eye on what's the cart and what's the horse um, and it's just you know this kind of view doesn't deny the possibility of social change and it doesn't deny the possibility of social improvement at all you know I I I endorse a sort of limited view of progress in a way if I think you as you would have to if you study this religious history um, but. You know, that progress was achieved, I would say, not by sort of saying, you know, not by not by making a tolerant society a condition of tolerating. <laughs> it was rather, you know, by taking this kind of this this leap of faith and saying we have to live together. Right. right. I think there's another positive side that you don't talk about. And this is informed um, by my appreciating uh, uh, not 16th century but 18th century thinkers, uh, John Stuart Mill most notably, mm -hmm. of um, how desirable it can be on a personal level because there's there's the negative of like do I have to have continue a conversation with someone who's just said something that's invalidating a key mm -hmm. part of my humanity there's also a sense where I actually personally can not always, but actually find enjoyment and depth in those conversations, even without any epistemic humility on my part. In, and this is very much from Mills on Liberty, the idea that 
even if someone's, even if you, they're, they're wrong about everything all the time, having the discussion is still enriching to your opinion. Mm-hmm. I've learned so much arguing with complete idiots because it just sharpens my responses. It sharpens my views. How do you knock down someone that is? How do you knock down something that isn't even a sentence? It's mm-hmm. just a vague, meandering nonsense. Mm-hmm. And your ability to get something that has traction on that, and 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 like you, you, you can say something meaningful to something meaningless is actually really enriching from like a developmental perspective um and i think that actually in a weird way can be something desirable about me as someone who doesn't believe in god sitting down and talking to someone who's telling me i'm going to hell which is a very insulting thing to say Mm -hmm. they're telling you you deserve to be tortured right Mm -hmm. and to, to sort of, even though I went into it assuming they were they were wrong about everything, and I went out of it thinking that, I still feel like my life has been enriched by those conversations. And of course, the, the ones where people are wrong about everything all the time are a minority. There's, there's often something where you do want a bit of epistemic humility, and mm-hmm. there is something that can be learned. And... I, I I want to end with this, like how you approach difficult conversations like you as a person, because mm-hmm. I've got to the point where I enjoy them a lot. And I again, I can hear my social justice friends using the privilege word and saying, yes, but you're a white man. Mm-hmm. And I'll you're a white man trained in philosophy. Right. <laughs> um, and I, I'll grant that to an extent, but I don't think that's all of it. I think part of it... It, it isn't reducible to confidence. It's not just that I'll be there and able to say my view in a, in a confident way. Mm-hmm. It's actually more about that I'll be there and be able to listen, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I really do feel like that does come from what I see as the richer parts of the liberal tradition, um, as opposed to like what I see as a more impoverished contemporary liberalism, that I've really taken to heart this idea of a developmental conception of human nature, and an idea that we are sort of enriched by, also by my study of Marxism and the idea of the dialectic, which I think is ontologically bogus, but it's a nice metaphor of like the the um, what do they call it? Like, like the um, uh, the interpenetration of opposing truths, right? Mm-hmm. So that's a beautiful phrase, whether or not you believe in the the the, the progress of history. Um, so I'm wondering how you find it personally, because there must be moments where someone says something where you just think you. Uh, you're you're just a complete sexist. Someone uses a virulently sexist word or something. Um, But do you ever sort of find... Well, let me turn it back on you. That's how I process these hard conversations, Mm. is that not always, but sometimes I find them really enriching, and I think that's a positive. And I'm wondering, like, how you, as a person, approach them. Yeah, well, I think this is an excellent question, and it's it's funny. I was thinking, you know, I hadn't actually been asked this question before, but I'd always been sort of expecting it. I mean, one of the things I always joke that you know all all dissertations are exercises in autobiography, um, and you know, this one's no exception. But I, I'm quite different to you in that I, I I'm not predisposed to enjoy difficult conversations. I'm not, pre- you know, I I'm quite conflict averse I get really anxious but then once I'm in it I get so much out of it and that's the thing so for me I have the real really strong even even today right even though this is now my business um still have that sense of like oof, you know and and I think maybe maybe partly it's a gendered thing I think partly it's a personality thing but um yeah, so I've always been, I've always liked the kind of million case. I remain kind of skeptical of the million case because I think that it is really, um, 
you know, uh, character dependent and sort of, you know, that people are very different when it comes to how much they benefit, benefit, um, or how much they enjoy disagreement. Um, but I would say that, you know, so you, you you talk about the Marxian dialectic. I mean, I would, I, I would appeal to the sort of platonic or Socratic dialectic, um, that there is just something about truth and and what it means to be human and what it means to know that it can only really be accessed in disagreement with another person and i you know i i feel that more and more as i continue to teach and i and i continue to see the ways in which my students you know are so afraid of disagreeing so afraid of uncomfortable conversations. They're really, they have that, you know, I can feel their anxiety. And I really worry that we're at risk of, you know, of, of raising, raising a generation or creating a society in which we've just sort of systematically robbed human beings of the kind of joy of conversation, or indeed the sort of horrors of an uncomfortable conversation. But um, I'll give you just like one example, which is what, what immediately is the one that comes to mind when I sort of think of when you know, a situation like this that 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 made a big impact on me, although I can't say I enjoyed it, was I was at dinner um, with a very, very eminent, um, very eminent academic philosopher, and I shan't say who it was, but he said something that I found incredibly offensive about um, about uh, about conservatives, in fact. <laughs> Um, you know, just ranting and raving about how, you know, anyone who could ever vote, vote conservative is a cretin, is what he said. And this is a very, you know, and, and, and the choice of words was really um, particular. And I just said, you know, nor, I, I, saw, I was listening to him and I really could sort of in a way couldn't believe my ears. And then I just, you know, and I think if, if I'd been in grad school, I never would have said anything. I would have just let it go and sort of said, you know, that was really nasty the way he was talking. Some of my best friends are concerned with that sort of response. But, um, but instead, you know, now, now that I'm a student of Roger Williams, I said, you cannot be serious. Hmm. You cannot be serious. Like, what is the view here? What is the view? And sort of let, let's spell it out. And then we ended up having not a very enjoyable conversation, but a really enlightening conversation. You know, one where I really learned where he was coming from and I was really forced to sort of probe sort of what was bothering me. And, you know, the very best thing about it, maybe I can say, is that it was at a, it was at a dinner, where, you know, my, one of my very best students was sitting next to him. And, you know, and then I talked to the student about it later and just that sort of experience of watching two, two adults and two academic, academic philosophers having a really uncomfortable disagreement on the basis of, you know, basis of offense. Um, yeah, I just think there's they, they may not be fun, but there's nothing like it. Yeah, so there's, there's two, we've got to close soon, I know, but there's, yeah. there's, there's, there's like two levels to this, right? There's firstly, do you like it in the moment? And then mm-hmm. there is, is it good for you in a deeper sort of personal and intellectual growth and what it means to be fully human sense, right? So I think whether you like it in the moment is just sort of, that's a character thing that might reduce, that that might be somewhat to do with like socialization I, I bet it must relate to gender in some way mm-hmm. um I'll, i i sort of admit that i do i just i just find them fun and funny sometimes <laughs> like some of my favorite things that people have ever said about me 
a, a so so me and Aaron Ra, this um, atheist YouTube personality, did a podcast where we, in a very sort of mainstream way, said that the atheists need to not stop knocking feminists. And mm-hmm. someone wrote me and said, I quote, "You are every bit as bad as Hitler." And <laughs> Like, how do you not get a kick out of that, right? Um, and one more quick example. I've only ever been peer-reviewed once, because um, I'm not an academic, I didn't do a PhD, but I just, I had this project I was interested in, and I eventually got it um, published in uh, Michael Frieden's journal, because I sort of knew him mm. a bit. And one of my peer reviewers, in his, you know how you get, like, anonymized peer review, highlighted three sentences that I'd written, copy-pasted them into his peer review, and said, in spite of the presence of verbs, none of these four utterances are sentences. (laughs) That's amazing! Oh my god. It is funny, you know, on the one hand, it's like, oh, well, you know, we don't want to trivialize the way in which uh, words can hurt. But there's also a way in which, you know, the exquisite torture of an academic and investing all of your being into the the quality of your prose, and you get these sorts of things back. You're like, oh. Um, I was told that my entire first page could profitably be reduced to two sentences. That that one I remember. Um, But that's right. I mean, I think you can train yourself. I mean, and that's the other thing. Um, You know, Roger Williams had a, I think, you know, had a strong sense of and you really see in the practice of toleration is that it does change you. And, you know, we can describe it as toughening it up. We can describe it as thickening skins. And I think that lots of people rightly sort of say, oh, well, you know, the the demand for thick skins always falls disproportionately on certain people. I think that that's clearly true, but that doesn't then mean that a more equitable demand for thickening skins is a is you know it, it, it isn't a isn't going to be necessary in a tolerant society. And and I hold to the view that tolerant societies are not only possible but um, preferable. Yeah, yeah, and even if it's not pleasant in the moment, I bet both of our writing got better after those jabs were thrown Absolutely. at it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, and there's an equivalent for like you as a person, right? Like, I've had really uncomfortable conversations about race with some of my black radical friends who I alluded to earlier. That Mm. I wouldn't go as far as to say I enjoyed, but like, am I a better person for having them? There's no doubt. Yeah. Yeah. No, I have to say that the, you know, times that I've been it's been pointed out to be that language I was using or something I said was racist, you know, it just feels awful in the moment. And then, you know, but then you have the conversation with, you have the conversation about it and you understand why and you understand. And I just think that we, especially, and I think about this as an educator, it's, you know, the idea that we would rob students of that and rob other human beings of those, of those incredibly human and enriching experiences. I think that would be, that would be a very bad thing. And on the other side, too, like, I've had conversations with people who are over bigots. Mm -hmm. I used to do campaigns at, like, trying to activate Republican primary voters to contact their representatives, because it's it's a more effective way to lobby Republican representatives than Democrats, right? Right. Um, With people who are over bigots, and it's not like they really said anything that changed my mind, but, like, I've developed a greater appreciation of my own views and a richer account of them by being forced to explain it to someone who's willfully misunderstanding me. 
Yes, that's really right. And also, I think in in being forced to do that, right, you do, you know, you don't come away. I, I always say, you know, this I say it in the book, and I and I think it's important. You know, familiarity can breed contempt, mm. <laughs> you know, as as much as it's opposite. But nevertheless, familiarity does remind you of the humanity of other people. Just sort of, sort of it makes it more difficult to 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 um to write them off as a you know, devils rather than devil worshippers, if you see what I mean. Mm. Um, and I think that's really valuable, especially when, I mean, I, coming back to, to education and universities, but especially when, you know, d- universities remain these incredibly sociologically narrow spaces, you know, and, and, and we fight to, we fight for access, we fight for inclusion, but, you know, it, it's, I mean, it, an awareness again, epistemic humility, an awareness of the sort of the peculiarity of this perspective is essential if we want to defend, um, defend, preserve, and hopefully persuade others of this perspective. Um, but that's my hope. Well, we absolutely should value diversity, but there's also ideological diversity. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Which is yeah. No, and that that is something. Yeah, I I I, I agree with. That. I mean, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. And I think there are yeah. good and bad ways to talk about it. But I do think that um, people sort of dismiss that concern, sort of uh, at their peril. Um, well, just because uh, a conservative says it doesn't, it might make it more likely that it's wrong, but it doesn't make it certain. No, absolutely. And I mean, again, I just, you know, I find the more I study political theory, the more moderate I become politically. I mean, it's just, in spe- especially in the sense that, you know, studying things historically, you become, mm-hmm. you, you begin to have a kind of perspective about, um, about perspective. But, um, but yeah, I just think this, um, again, you know, what, what's the point? What's the point of having conversations with people who agree with you already? Yeah. And you've got to get to your student. One final thought is the more I study political theory, I'm not sure I've become more moderate. There's still quite extreme left-wing views I hold, like I've sort of convinced myself of prison abolition recently. (laughs) Um, But I do find that my relationship with the American Republic has changed. Like, I Mm. live there, and I think there's a kind of reflexive dismissal, almost like embarrassment of America on the left. It's like this narrative that like we're the worst developed nation if only we could just be Sweden. I find yeah. <laughs> really uninspiring and also just kind of like really incorrect because when you study political theory a lot and history a lot, it does, I'm trying to avoid the word exceptional here, but you do get a sense of how unusual the American accomplishment yeah. is. In, in that they're doing something that religiously you would assume is impossible. Yeah. And they're doing it, um, yeah, they're doing it across a continent, which most political theorists would assume you could only have a republic in a small community through mm. most of history. And you do have to appreciate that as, e- even if not a moral, but like just a sociological accomplishment. Yeah. I think that I, I, I agree with that. And I think that, again, just, you know, in a way, getting away from the kind of romanticized sort of, you know, romanticized accounts that we get of the American founding, um, getting, you know, going back to the 17th century, you know, in the early colonial history is just essential to really get a, get a grip on just how unlikely yeah. this success was and again, I'm not saying it's an unqualified success, but I think that it's something that, especially given 
commitments to things like diversity, equality, and inclusion. Mm-hmm. You want to look really closely at what's happening in the colonies, um, uh, just because it's it really again you know it's un it, it's at best unlikely in in, in you know in and uh, we all had you know in in in, in very you know probably impossible and yet and yet it got off the ground i mean it's just a, i think it's hard not to, if you do this in a historically minded way it's hard not to have a sense of that achievement um and i think that yeah it, it's a it's a it's a lesson worth remembering and again just because i think it encourages us to on the one hand not take not take unmurderous coexistence for granted um, which I think is probably the, yes. the main political takeaway that I would I would give, but also again to encourage us to think more imaginatively about what kind of institutions are possible or what kind of institutional responses to intractable political problems might be worth playing around with. Um, the early you know early history of America is a is a wonderful storehouse um, for that kind of thinking. Cool. Let's pause there. If people want to follow you, get your book, where should you go? You're on Twitter, right? Yeah, I'm on Twitter. Um, so it's at TM Bejan, Um And you can get the book on Amazon. Uh, and yeah, I that those are probably the, the best ways. And you can also find me on the Oxford um, website. Cool. I'll link to all of that when I put it up. Thank you so much for your time today. Brilliant. Well, Toby, thank you. This was really enjoyable. Um, Really enjoyable. I just, yeah, I wish, you know, hopefully we'll have a chance to talk again because I think that, um, I think all of these themes are, are really important. Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, there's a few different ways you can support it. We suggest a donation of $2 per episode, and I talked at length about the suggested donation feature on the first part of this series, so you're more than welcome to check that out. But the basic idea is that if you get the same value from this show as you would from a cup of coffee, consider sponsoring it on that basis. And that allows us to keep putting out the show for free to anyone who wants to listen to it in a format that's ad-free. You can also share the show on your own social media, tag friends or forward it to friends who might be interested, and all of that helps us grow and continue to get these conversations out there. And as ever, a big thank you to everyone who has supported the show and who does share our updates. I'm really genuinely grateful for everyone who does that. Next week, I'll be taking a bit of an intermission from interviews, and I'll do Ask Me Anything. So I'll be taking audience questions on whatever it is you want to ask me. We got a great deal of really good quality comments, like literally hundreds, from the Free Will series we did. So I'll respond to those. But if there's any questions that have come up from this latest series on civility and toleration, send them to me as well. You can um, post them on our Facebook or Twitter, direct message me, anything that works. And if you're not following us on social media, the links to all of that are on the website, politicalphilosophypodcast.com, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. So if you have any questions, thoughts, comments, angry outbursts, 
send them my way. Apart from that, thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.